The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club podcast. My guest this week is Shehan Karunatilaka, the author of Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, which won last year's Booker Prize and is now out in paperback. Shehan, welcome. Oh, thank you. Now, this is an unusual book in some respects because its principal protagonist is dead on page one. Can you tell me how you made that decision as the basis for this novel? Well, one was, I suppose, political. One was just conceptual. I just wanted... I've always liked the the murder mystery. And my first book, Chinaman, everyone says it's a book about cricket. But, you know, I think it's a detective story about a missing person. And this one, I would say, is a murder mystery, a fairly conventional one. But the only detail being the corpse is the detective. And so I was attracted to that idea of just to a fairly... And I'd say, even though there's talking animals and demons and all sorts of shenanigans... It's seven moons, it's the ticking clock, seven days to solve the crime, plenty of dodgy suspects around, and a few reversals and twists. But the main twist is, yeah, the detective and the corpse are the same person. So that that was the stylistic reason. But also, I think I was coming off this cricket book, and I wanted to do something completely different. And this was around 2012, 13, 14, the post-war period for Sri Lanka. So our 30-year war ended in 2009. I remember I was in Singapore at the time and we all expected this period to be the country would unify and put our differences behind us and go forward. But instead, there was a lot of bickering on whose fault it was and did civilians die? How many? Who's to be blamed for that? Were there war crimes? And there was a lot of bickering that just kept going on, mainly on the internet. And... This idea came to me mainly for a short story, but uh, what if the dead could speak? What if we allowed the dead, the, the civilians that died, what if they could speak? What kind of story would they say? What would they say about Sri Lanka and what it had done to it and whose fault it was? So these two ideas, sort of, they weren't incompatible. In fact, they were the same thing. And so that's why I started, okay, a ghost story, which can also interrogate the ghosts of Sri Lanka's past, but also be a fairly standard murder mystery. So that's where the guy wakes up dead on page one, because most ghost stories, you don't meet the ghost till the third act. So that presented its own set of challenges, but it seemed far enough away from cricket. So I had ticked that box. But then, yeah, I had to then spend the next seven years kind of figuring out what the afterlife looked like and how this thing would play out. I was wondering about that world building, because in some sense, it's not, I mean, it's not science fictional exactly, but you obviously needed to put in place not only a vibe for the afterlife. I mean, you know, he, he starts in this sort of fantastic bureaucratic sorting station, but also a set of rules, you know, the way he travels around, who he can speak to, who he can't speak to, the different hierarchies of demons. I mean, how did you go about creating this world in which, at least to start with, presumably anything could happen? Mm. So, yeah, that that's the first set of problems. So what, what are the rules? Because... So I was thinking still it's a ghost story. I mean, since then, I've been asked about magical realism and fantasy, and I I didn't think I was in any of those genres. It was simply problem solving. What are the rules? And 
because it does. I'm not a big reader of fantasy, but I've read a, you know, read a few of the famous ones. And the thing that irritates me is that when it seems that people are just making up rules as they go along, that irritates me even in cinema. If it's a that suddenly, okay, he can breathe fire or he can go invisible. We didn't know that at the beginning, and that gets him out of the third act problem. And so, so I was very much clear that whatever the world was, the rules, I had to set the rules early on and I couldn't break them and be consistent. So that, that was the first thing. And I, I remember there was a bunch of ghost rules and yeah, how'd you go about it? I think, yeah, so I, you'd read the ghost stories from, yeah, the classics from Edgar Allan Poe and M.R. James to, um, yeah, present day, like Sri Lankan folklore, ghost stories, horror movies, the religious texts, read Dante. Um, so I did a lot of procrastination. It's a wide enough subject, almost as wide as cricket, that you can lose yourself in just reading reading stuff around it. And and the near-death experiences as well, that was important. So a lot of these people who are brought back from the flatlining say, talk about the light. That seems to be a common trope, walking towards the light and there being a guardian spirit there guiding you towards the light and you don't go meet the light for whatever reason. So I had a bunch of these tropes. But the main thing, I think, was probably from Tibetan Buddhism, not the Buddhism practiced in Sri Lanka, which is Theravada. It's talking the Mahayana tradition, which has more of a pantheon. I think the Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Myanmar, it's more about the meditation and the practice. And But Tibetan, if you look at those mandalas and all that, there's a big mythology and pantheon where you get human spirits, animal spirits, demons, the rakshas, and, you know, hungry ghosts. And so I took in all of these elements and I just figured, okay, for it to work, the ticking clock is important. So the seven days, the seven moons of Mali Almeida, that comes straight from Sri Lankan, I wouldn't even say folklore, it's tradition. We have a wake after the wake. So after the death, seven days later, we have an almsgiving and a blessing. Priests come and bless the house. And because we believe that the spirit hovers around for seven days after death until it goes to the next place. And I've seen that practice in Singapore and other parts of Asia. So that was immediately my ticking clock. And also we have one after three months, 90 days. So I thought, okay, I can incorporate that, that he has seven moons to find out what happens to him and make peace with the afterlife. But I think the main rules that we ended up with, the important ones are, yeah, what do ghosts do all day? I had to solve that problem. Can they go anywhere? Can they talk to humans? Can they do all the things we see in the B movies? So I figured that you could only go where your corpse has been, which made sense. So that's why ghosts are only seen, mostly seen in cemeteries or the houses that they lived in. You could go where the wind takes you. So that was a convenient thing. Also, when you're writing at three, four in the morning before the kids wake up and a door slams and a window slams and you feel a gust of wind and you you have that spooky feeling that maybe is someone in this room telling me the story. I think most writers have that, you know, Am I writing the story? Is someone whispering it to me? That's when it's going well. So that wind was the second rule. But the third one was you could only go where your name was spoken or you could go wherever your name was spoken. So that was a good device for a murder mystery. So wherever someone said the word Mali Almeida, Mali could immediately go there and see who was talking about him and see the different suspects. So those were the three main rules that we set in place right at the beginning. And that allowed me to navigate. But also... They made sense to me in the same way that you die a second death. So therefore, when the last person on earth remembers your name or speaks your name. And look, it sounds like I just woke up one morning and the rules were in place. And, you know, 
you know how how long these things. So this was like years of just trying out different things. Can ghosts uh, change the temperature? Do ghosts cause cancers? Do ghosts control insects? I went through all those things. And then these were the three things we distilled it to. And then the vision of the afterlife as bureaucracy was a good opening gag. That was the opening scene that you you don't wake up with all the secrets of the universe revealed to you. You wake up in a waiting room with a piece of paper in your hand. You've got to go to that counter and get it stamped. But the person's gone to lunch. That seemed a nice place to start an afterlife. I mean, I I knew it was going to go into some pretty serious, gruesome territory talking about 89. But I also knew that it had an absurdist black comic tone to it. So that opening scene of the the bureaucracy, that's where it came from. But then I think I just borrowed from different sources. I mean, you can, uh, I can pinpoint each one. I think the Mahakali, who's the big, the hell demon, the the universe's black heart in the story, it's very much part of Kali from Hindu mythology. The Mahasona, which is a graveyard ghoul with the head of a bear. But it's also Hellraiser, Clive Barker's Hellraiser. It's also the the souls being devoured and uh, appearing in the skin of the demon. So... I just think I just absorbed as many of these things. And also, you don't need to explain. I mean, that's one thing Natanya Jans, my editor at Sort of Books, said. Yeah, you don't need to explain every single thing. You're not forming a religion. You're not, uh, you know, you just need to explain enough to get the story going. And so I think in the editing process, it was taking a lot of this stuff out. But, you know, as you can see, I had a lot of fun with it. Oh, yeah. I love to hear Clive Barker mentioned as well. I, mean, I was going to say this is the only Booker Prize winning novel as well that that has routine references to Shaken Stevens in it. Uh, <laughs> was he big in Sri Lanka in the 80s? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, wasn't he the... I could be making this up, but I don't think I am. The artist in the UK who had the most top 40 hits out of anyone um, was Shaken Stevens, not Springsteen or Madonna or Michael Jackson. It was Shaken Stevens. I think that... I like that to be true. Anyway, we can check. I would like it to be true as well. <laughs> So I grew up, we had pirated cassettes and then CDs started to come in. So 60s, 70s, for whatever reason, there weren't big vinyl crate digging places. But there was a lot of Boney M, ABBA, and those uh, Jim Reeves. Now, I don't know if Jim Reeves is quite the cultural phenomenon he is in. And I know this to be South India as well. Maybe it had to do with Radio Ceylon playing a lot of Jim Reeves. But those were standard issue. Every middle-class Colombo, Gaul, Candy, Sri Lankan home, a lot of Boney M and Abba and Jim Reeves. But certainly Shaking Stevens, when I was growing so when I grew up, it was still Radio Solar had become Sri Lanka Broadcasting Corporation, which was still playing all the hits. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I we didn't miss out on Rick Astley or Stock Aitkin and Waterman. All that was but there was a steady diet of Shaking Stevens. I think all of his top 40 hits were were on heavy rotation. And I remember because, you know, growing up at that time, later seeing a movie with Elvis, an Elvis movie, and I'm thinking, hey, man, he copied Shaking Stevens. What's Who's this guy? <laughs> what a fantastic way to get that. Now, can I ask you just finally, what, one more before we get onto the meter thing? There's another formal decision you made that interested me, and I was wondering what you had to say, but, but you've told the book in the second person. Mm. So Marley is, in some sense... The reader. What was it that made you want to do it that way around? Is it some sense of complicity or, or what? Again, problem solving. I tried it in the third person. I think the first draft was in the third person. So, um, yeah, but the ghost of Mali Almeida then emerged as the main character. So he was a minor character in the first draft or just a ghost on a bus. 
And then I did the first person. But for some reason, I was just thinking, okay, so what does a disembodied voice sound like? It's like, yeah, what does the invisible wall look like? And I was thinking, I can't really describe him. I can describe what he used to look like. But while I was grappling with this, I thought, okay, what actually survives the death of your body? I mean, his body is being uh, you know, cut into pieces and chucked in a river in on chapter one. So what is left? And I came to the conclusion, it's the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is in the second person. Like, I don't know about your head, Sam, well, or anyone else's, what the your thoughts, but to me, it's always almost like someone else telling me, okay, you should have, uh, yeah, worn a better shirt for this uh, podcast. You, you should have got your internet checked. You should have, it's like someone else telling me stuff. And um, I just went with that for a few uh, chapters and it just seemed to work. And then later I post-rationalized it as, well, maybe this is not quite the Mali Almeida who lived and was born in the 50s and died in the late 80s or 90s. This is perhaps the voice of his soul across centuries, telling the story and recounting their last existence. Maybe it's the voice of his conscience. And, you know, I think that notions also played with a bit where he sometimes questions, who's the voice in your head that tells you your thoughts? And we always assume that it originates from us. But what if, and that's a trope in the novel that we're saying, what if there are other spirits whispering in your ear and filling your head with thoughts? And that's a possible explanation why Sri Lanka has gone through so many catastrophes, that there's so many spirits wandering around whispering bad ideas into powerful people's heads. And But so answer your question, that's the reason, I, I guess the main reason was it worked and I kept, the pages seemed to flow. And that tone was detached, but still part of Mali. So it's not quite Mali, but yeah, it's, it's a voice in his head. So that's how I arrived at it. And then later when the audiobook came out, Shivanta Vijay Singh, I think it's nominated for an award, the audiobook of the year, and I, and his performance is terrific. I mean, he's a Sri Lankan, but living in Australia, but he gets obviously gets the names and the accents right. But he tells the narrative voice and the flashback voice are in slightly different registers. So the you telling the story versus the Mali Almeida and the flashbacks are slightly different voices, which I thought was quite clever. And I think that's mainly with the spirits of the you telling the story and the Mali Almeida are kind of the same person, but not really. But yeah, the voice in your head, that was really the reason why I chose it. Yeah. Now, you know, background to the book, this bloody civil war that went on and on. The time in which the book is set, you would have been yourself a teenager, wouldn't you? I mean, was this a period you remember well and that embedded itself in your mind, or did you sort of have to go back and find out what really happened there? Because there's a lot of, you know, the 1983 massacres and so forth. There's a lot of historical fact in there, isn't there? Yeah, so I was a child in 83. I was, you know, a teenager in 89. and But I was also living in the Colombo bubble, which the book also talks about, which is what Mali is very much the, the English-speaking middle class. Also Colombo, so we were growing. So after 83 happened on our streets and... I was aware from the conversations I'd overhear of what was going on down, but obviously you can't comprehend the the extent of it. And it's only now when I researched it that I realized. And just 89, I just remember being very confused at how many conflicts were happening at the same time. So we'd grown up with this, uh, the Tamil separatist, uh, the LTTE and the Sri Lankan government, that war happening in Jaffna after 83. So... But then suddenly when there was a ceasefire there, there was a Marxist uprising down south. 
And then there was the Indian peacekeeping force. And I, all I know is that I, I did, even in Colombo, you'd see some mornings going to school, you'd see bodies on the side of the road. And uh, no idea. You'd ask uh, whoever was driving, what is that? And they'd turn your face away. And no one could say whose body that was, whether it was a suspected terrorist, a sus- suspected Marxist, or just someone, an innocent bystander, or who had put them there. And to be fair, I didn't really experience, I I lived in that Colombo bubble and all I knew was, okay, there'll be a, a curfew and, you know, school will close down for weeks and, and you'd see the fear in the conversations and the faces of the grown-ups. But it's only later, I think, that when I made friends with people who'd grown up in Jaffna, people of my generation, my age, who'd grown up down south, my wife grew up in the plantations and had quite a harrowing experience with the planters being assassinated. Her dad was a tea planter. And and, uh, so her experience was very much very different to mine. So I felt at the time, and shortly afterwards, my family migrated to New Zealand. And so, but I, I do remember that time just being quite confusing that there were so many conflicts happening at the same time. So when I came to write this, also, I, I felt it was far back into the past that uh, I wouldn't get into much trouble writing about it. If I was writing about, say, 2009, or even if I was writing about the Easter attacks now, I, it may be a contentious issue. And yeah, I'd get a lot of flack and I'd really have to do my homework and be brave about it. But I felt 89 was far in, enough in the past. So it wasn't so much from my experience of it. It's maybe my guilt of my lack of experience, the fact that, you know, we didn't really suffer. We were we were removed from it. It's only through talking to people who've been through it. And then it's fairly well documented. So I was able to research the different factions and what was happening. But yeah, at the time, yeah, I was busy listening to Shaking Stevens and uh, playing cricket and just being a teenager in safe Colombo. And I think that idea of the Colombo bubble also is there in the book very much where Marley is one person who actually feels so much guilt about it that he goes out to these dangerous places even though he doesn't have to and to take yes he's a, we should say he's a, he's a sort of war photographer isn't he but he's a very graham greenian figure because he's a war photographer who's spying for all sorts of people and working for all sorts of masters and mm. he criticizes the i mean there's many reasons why he and yeah graham greenian i i like that that's quite accurate in the way and i did I can now see the influence of that kind of character where he's, especially the characters he's dealing with in that situation where, so he's stringing for, and he, I wouldn't say he's apolitical. Mali Almeida has got his political beliefs, but he just believes they are all bad guys. The terrorists, the government, the Marxists, the, the foreign sorts who are dealing arms and propaganda, but he works for any of them. But he also feels that by taking these photographs, maybe that'll take the Colombo bubble out of its complacency. Maybe the world's apathy towards the Sri Lankan conflict would stop once his photographs were seen. I'm somewhat of idealistic, naive notion, which I don't think I had at that time or have had ever since. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure I'd be brave enough, uh, even if I was close to Mali's age, to, yeah, leave comfortable Colombo and go into these very dangerous places with a camera. So... I think I was borrowing on my sense of detachment from the conflict, but he was, yeah, a much braver, more idealistic version of of what what I would be. But no, I I ended up learning about this period much, much after the fact. And that sense of what you describe, you know, even living in Colombo, bubble or not, you're in country and, and there's a sense of all these different conflicts taking place at once and it being very hard to tell who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and who's supporting who and who's striking a deal with who. Did you worry that that was an obstacle 
to an audience kind of being able to get hold of what was going on in the book. I noticed you put this hugely helpful to those of us who aren't familiar with Australian Civil War. You've got a kind of little crib sheet about a quarter of the way in where Marley has written some notes from Florence Stringer that, you know, I, I probably am not the only reader who dog-eared that page. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so if, if you were writing a thriller, you'd say there's way too many plots here. And there is. I mean, I didn't even mention the peace accord between Sri Lanka and India and India's involvement in, at one point, perhaps supporting the Tigers to then fighting a war with them. There were so many moving parts to this, but also all I needed was I had to keep track of my character and my murder mystery. So this wasn't supposed to be, even, I know it's been interpreted as a state of the nation novel, but I think my my analysis of the whole thing is fairly shallow. Like in, in terms of, I'm not really looking at the nuances of uh, what the LTT and the government and the JVP did. I, he just says in that cheat sheet, as you say, he says, you know, don't look for any good guys because there aren't any good guys here. It's all bad guys and just try not to get hurt. And that's the extent of the the, the historical analysis of it. So with a Western read, and I, I've spent two and a half years with Natanya during the pandemic, editing this down from the Indian version to what became the final version with that very thought in mind that you don't want to, you just need enough information so the, the that a reader, and I think this is a measure of a good book that a reader should be able to pick it up anywhere in the planet, not have any knowledge about Sri Lanka or left arm spinners or wars or, or tigers and still be able to have experience. So I think that was the brief we gave ourselves. And that's why, so the crib sheet was certainly came from there. And also I think the explanation of the afterlife, there's just enough information that you need without because I could have really uh, gone to town on this and I as you can see I love my digressions and so the the book's long enough. Can I ask did you feel obliged to be faithful to the historical record I mean was there a sort of moral obligation to say you know when we're writing about what happened in 83 say this needs to be a version of what actually happened I mean I know you seem to have conflated some real life politicians into your fictional politicians. Yeah, so the original title was Chats with the Dead. And it was Mali Almeida going around the afterlife, chatting to different ghosts, different victims of Sri Lanka's tragedies. And that element is still there in the book. And each ghost is based on a real unsolved murder or a real tragedy. So, for instance, there's the three tourists, the German, the French, the English tourists, who were killed in the 86 Air Lanka bomb blast. So I, I've done that, but I've also, I've maybe I've merged a few. If you if you Google Sri Lankan massacres of the last forty years, you get a list, a depressingly long list of. So I I might have conflated a couple, maybe tweaked a few. One thing I thought either you need to write nonfiction and call it Richard De Soisa's death or Rajin. So these are characters that. My starting points: Richard De Soisa is perhaps a prototype for Mali Almeida. He was a slain activist of the late 80s, Dr. Rajini Thiranagama, who appears as the character Dr. Rani. So all these characters, I thought either I write a straight biography of them or I just use their spirits, pardon the pun, and then kind of, yeah, use whatever makes dramatic sense. So I didn't feel that, you know, I've got talking leopards and uh, demons in there. So I, I, but... This criticism has been leveled against me by, you know, there's always going to be trolls saying, well, you know, that massacre didn't happen in 87, it happened in 89. And uh, there are so many. And so I get that 
but I, I sidestepped that saying that, yeah, I am writing fiction and I'm telling it through the uh, points of views of these radical characters. But the broad strokes aren't inaccurate. I would challenge anyone to say that any allegation made in that is untrue. They're fairly well the evidence of collusion between government and terrorists at one point in order to expel the Indian. Again, quite well documented. So I did use the broad strokes. But yeah, I did move on from them um, because I don't want it to be confused. I did, that's why I didn't use the real names. I think in my first book, with the cricket book, I was trying to play a game that it may be true. So I use a lot of real names. Here, I do change a lot of the names because I don't want it to be confused for real history. But the real story is far more gruesome and far more shocking and far more depressing than anything I've written. I can assure you of that, yeah. There is a very intriguing line in the book, and I was just wondering where it came from, where you you have them talking about sort of versions of destiny or karma. And somebody says, Burma, Israel, North Korea, apartheid South Africa, Sri Lanka, all born in 48. (laughs) How much do you feel there is some sort of connection between those? Why do you think 48 was this magic year for trouble? No idea, but these are the things you stumble upon, right, when you're doing your research. And it makes you go, hmm, and... uh... So Nakat, like explaining that chapter, the idea of timing and dates, and uh, we still believe in astrologers, right? Even that economic collapse that happened last year, they consulted astrologers before they consulted economists over how to, when inflation was going to rise. So these beliefs are still there. Like everyone says the reason Sri Lanka's messed up is because our national anthem has too many beats in the bar. It has seven and a half beats in the second verse, and that's the reason why. And so, and there's serious scholarship on this stuff. So this idea that time, if you start a journey on a certain time, it'll be successful, or if not, it won't be. And in the book, I kind of riff on that in talking about chance and gambling and making this guy a gambler. But then, yeah, this thing you point out that 1948, the year Sri Lanka was born, these other countries were born. Uh, yeah, North Korea, what was it? Israel, North Korea, Burma now, and apartheid South Africa. And you think, okay, so maybe is there something to this, this cosmic numerology and all of that? So yeah, it was too delicious not to put in there. I have no explanation for it. 1948, I mean, what, three years after the end of the war? If India and Pakistan had procrastinated, we could have added them into the mix as well. Um, I have to admit, it is quite telling that all those countries of, um, I suppose, South Africa has, not that South Africa is by any means a perfect place now, but okay, it's been through its its dark period, but Sri Lanka has continued as have the other countries. And uh, well, the demon believes that there's uh, definitely a reason for that. Sure do. Now, again, you take on, I mean, I don't want to press the politics of the book too much because it is a, it's a murder mystery before it's a political thing, but you colonialism is very much discussed and imperialism and its legacy are very much at the centre of national cultural conversations and you have a, an exchange between two characters in which one of them says look it's nothing to do with the british or the indians it's you know we fucked it up all by ourselves do, do you think that's the the right view to take on sri lanka's troubles it's that character's view and look let me say yeah it's i would say it's my view as well uh, that we can look back and, yeah, our colonialists were certainly not blameless. You know, you, let's not be naive about this. And uh, a lot of the problems of 48 stem from divide and conquer. And, yeah, fine. But the fact is, in if you look at 1950s Ceylon, the way it's written about, the way Lee Kuan Yew uh, mythologizes it in his memoirs as being his model for how he wanted Singapore to be, 
also it was a very small island. Like it wasn't an India or Pakistan with, well, you know, East Pakistan and West Pakistan, massive populations, many divisions. It was a small enough country that it, and blessed with enough resources that we could have abandoned that narrative and gone the way of Singapore quite, you know. There's still people who believe that that's possible, that now, okay, we've got a chunk of change from the IMF. Let's put things behind us. Now we're going to be Singapore in 2038 or whatever. And there's still that optimism. And because also it's a familiar trope of you know, right-wing politicians that this is all a foreign, a Western conspiracy. All the Easter attacks were a Western conspiracy. The war crimes thing, it's all many foreign hands are influencing this. There were no human rights violations. This is all a foreign conspiracy. So... In part, I'm kind of uh, taking aim at that, that the country celebrated 75 years of so-called independence, that maybe it's time to take a bit of responsibility now and, yeah, admit our failings that of our catastrophes, maybe you can, well, not maybe, you can certainly say the tsunami was a natural disaster, but every other disaster was self-inflicted. Every other wound was self-inflicted and was our fault. So I think that idea that, and I know we're in a period of uh, history where the West is certainly looking now at colonialism with a much more realistic and harsher view. And I think that conversation should happen. But I don't think Sri Lanka should be allowed to get away with that. And I can say that. Uh, that's the about being a, being a local writer, not being, uh, yeah. If I was a foreign observer, maybe that's not. But yeah, I can say that. That's, uh, um, at least in my lifetime, I think a lot of it, rests on our shoulders. Can I ask how much of a hot potato the period you're writing about still is? You've said, you know, if you were to write about the 90s, you think, you know, there'd be a lot of pushback, there'd be, it would be very controversial. Is it something that in Sri Lanka people don't want to talk about at all? Or I'm, I'm interested in how your book's been sort of received locally. Is there a sense this is a useful excavation of that time or a sort of, you shouldn't be writing about this stuff and washing our laundry in public? Yeah, it depends who you ask. Uh, really depends who you ask. Same, I think, with most questions about Sri Lanka. I don't think it's a contentious period in that I don't think there's anyone, even your most hardline uh, singular chauvinist, is not going to say that 83 was not a travesty, not an atrocity. Not, I don't think anyone's disputing that. But still, 83, there hasn't been a memorial, an apology, an acknowledgement by any government since. And it's it's a long, it's many governments ago. And sorry, just to clarify, 83 was uh, the the pogroms against the Tamil civilian population around the country, which led to the LTT and, uh, and the conflict that went on. And it only gets memorialized on the internet. Every July, there's a few posts, let's never forget Black July 83, and there's conversations online, but nothing from any government. And also, I think the tendency is, yeah, let's not talk about this stuff because it's the past, it's bygones. And yeah, certainly that allegation of this is how you win Western awards by portraying our country as a, a dystopia, bunch of savages killing each other and talking about these periods. And that's a, so, yeah, but uh, uh, to be fair, it's, it's a few trolls. It's a few trolls. And even, I think, even the people who write this stuff aren't denying that I'm like making it up. Like, aren't saying that I'm making it up. No one can deny that this stuff happens. So, um, but I think the majority is, so you have, the privilege of saying, okay, bygones, let's forget about it, let's move on. But people who suffered, the Tamils who were displaced in that time, in 89, the families that lost their youth, who went disappeared, and disappeared, you know, it's not as easy for them to forget these things. And there's no even acknowledgement that these things happened. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still many cases of, uh, 
and let's go back to recent times, the, the end of the war, young men and women who gave themselves up and were never seen again. And again, no answers and let's not talk about this stuff. That strategy hasn't seemed to have worked is my point and that uh, it gets conflated with, okay, if you're mentioning war crimes, then you are fulfilling an agenda. Are you a secret LTT? All that. But I just think this is shared, especially among the younger generation, that for the soul of the country, you need to talk about these things. You need to know what the things that we did to each other a generation ago, why they happened and why they should never happen again. And I think not talking about it, I'm not sure that solution really has worked. So in Sri Lanka, I'd say a lot of the feedback I've got, you know, a lot of people, obviously where I live, the team wins a cricket match. So, so during the midst of an economic meltdown to win a Booker Prize, there was a lot of love and congratulations. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, these things happened. And uh, we're glad that the world is reading about it. I and mean, that's the thing about a, a big prize like this. Suddenly, I just did an interview with Slovenia and Greece. My books were never in danger of being published in Slovenia and Greece. But uh, so I think people appreciate that, yeah, Sri Lanka is being talked about and that these things happen. But yeah, you do get a few trolls who say, well, you know, why are you bringing this stuff up? Do you want it to start again? And this debate is raging right through the book as well. Mali Almeida himself is being counseled by two different spirits. One saying, forget the past, move on, walk into the light and move on. The other saying, no, dig up the past, interrogate it. And take revenge. I mean, there's, the politics doesn't stop at death, does it? You know, Yes. <laughs> faction in the afterlife. Karma yeah. doesn't work. There's no uh, system to it. So if you want justice, injustice addressed, you can't wait for the courts, either the mortal courts or the, the cosmic ones. You've got to do it yourself. Which again, that thought is also there. Yeah, I think that. That debate hasn't left Sri Lanka. But, you know, by and large, I think the book is seen for what it is. Like, I, I've also steered clear of being commenting too much about contemporary issues and all that. I say I'm writing about history. I'm a mystery novelist. And um, I kind of tore that line. So, um, but yeah, let's see. It's, it's still early days, right? I mean, it's, we're just six months away. But mostly the reaction has been positive. But I'm waiting now. It's going to be published in Sinhala and Tamil. We're having, so let's see once it reaches, you know, the wider Sri Lankan audience, how it would be seen. But hopefully, you know, I'm, like I say, it's a book of talking leopards, but I'm not making a lot of this stuff up apart from talking leopards and demons. The the broad strokes of the 89 are, are reasonably accurate. The, the decision also, to, I mean, Mali is a very attractive character. He's also a very world one. He's got a lifestyle that's full of drink, full of drugs, full of gambling. He's a very promiscuous gay man. Is some of that a kind of rebuke to the conservative elements in society? Or was it just going to make him more fun to be a, a wild child? Yes, so his character, like I say, it began with Richard de Soisa, who was a slain. Now, he wasn't a war photographer. He was an activist. He was a more of a theatre person, a playwright, worked in films, but more of a radical than Mali. So I began with that unsolved murder. But then the layers of his character, so him being a gambler, being this atheist, nihilist character, being this closeted gay man, I, I suppose that detail came from Richard de Sousa, who was also that. But aside from that, each layer just... And him being a war photographer was quite useful for having like a thriller plot where he has this these photographs that no one's ever seen that's going to rock uh, the world and Colombo and Sri Lanka. And so that was one of the engines that drove the plot. But no, I don't think it was a, 
I wasn't intending it as a rebuke because I don't think it's certainly not an LGBTQ novel, even though it's been misrepresented in certain places. It's it's just, I'd say, a murder mystery ghost story and the lead character happens to be gay. I don't know if it was my intention. Uh, no, I don't think it was. I just think Marley just turned out the way. And also, I had to have reasons why this boy would go to these war zones when he was living a fairly comfortable existence in Colombo. And these seem to be all reasons. One was this middle-class guilt that I touched on, but also as a closet gay man, and, you know, he kind of, I wouldn't say a self-denying gay man, but he doesn't use those words to describe himself. He says, I'm a handsome man who loves beautiful boys. And he can go to these war zones where the rules don't apply and he could be himself and express himself. So maybe that was part of the allure. But also it was... It was ego as well. He knew he was very good at this thing of taking photographs, being in the wrong place with the camera. So all these, so I think it was in constructing his reasons for doing it that I realized he was this sort of hedonist, rock and roll, uh, gonzo photographer, bang, bang club, war photographer guy. It just seemed that profile worked. So yeah, I wasn't thinking of the wider implications. And, and also, I, to be fair, I don't know, now... And so I've been accused of this as well, being uh, jumping on the bandwagon of the zeitgeist, uh, which uh, yeah is maybe partially true because I mean now we have many representations of gay men in literature and the media, and especially in South Asian literature. So I didn't think I was making any big statements there. It just happened to be a character detail. But yeah, again, I always remember the trolls. You don't remember the the hundred good reviews that you don't remember. You remember the <laughs> but also yeah, there was a. We'll call him, no spoilers here, but we'll call him an Uncle Stanley character had written a review and uh, said, you know, it seems like all of Colombo is either gay or lesbian or cheating on their spouse or all of that, and, uh, which I'm not saying is the case, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> but in this book, in this little segment of this little flat of Colombo, maybe that's what was happening. Well, the, the Booker Prize is a very good rebuke to the trolls. So, uh, Shahan... Yes. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Oh, thank you very much, Sam. Thanks.